Hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and I'm excited to introduce my special guest to you, his second time on the podcast. He is the notorious man-centered theology podcast himself, Nicholas Quint. Nick, how you doing today, sir? I'm good, brother. I know you're in Texas, so you're a few hours ahead of me, but in God's country, what's a few hours, right? <laughs> exactly. Are you on the West Coast, or is that right, California? I'm in California, about an hour east of Los Angeles. So okay. once you hit the, uh, we're, we're the city we live in is the last ditch stop before you hit that empty desert to Phoenix, that four-hour okay. empty desert drive to Phoenix. So we're in that weird spot where you go five minutes past us on the, you know, the interstate, and it's just desert. Yeah. So I knew you were like two hours behind me, and anytime that's the case, my guest is usually in California. So I figured you're in California, but I wasn't quite exactly sure where. Well, I'm, I'm glad to have you back on. I really enjoyed our first conversation for the uh, listeners. Um, if you don't know who Nick is, go back to the other episode we did. It really wasn't that long ago. I don't Or maybe it was. Time flies pretty fast. And we did a, uh, a podcast on egalitarianism and uh, the role of women in the church and uh, questions of that nature. It was a very good and instructive, and you should go back and look at that and then follow the links in the description to Nick's uh, different websites and podcasts. And, of course, we're going to be discussing today Nick's book, The Perfection of Our Faithful Wills, Paul's Apocalyptic Vision of Entire Sanctification. And if that sounds like a mouthful, Nick will simplify it and put it into human words for us in a moment. But before we get to that, Nick, I thought it would be helpful. We've got some new um, listeners. The podcast is surprisingly growing a bit and the YouTube channel. So uh, if you don't mind giving us a brief introduction of who you are and what you do. Sure. I'm the uh, associate pastor at the First Baptist Church of Redlands, California, uh, about, like I said, an hour east of Los Angeles proper. Of course, that doesn't account for traffic or anything. Uh, I did my master's in New Testament at Fuller. I did my undergrad at Biola. And uh, yeah, I just I write a lot. And I'm one of those theology geeks that really just can't stop being a theology geek. And so yeah, I co-host the uh, Synergist podcast. Uh, it's contrary to a few people on the internet that make jokes about it. It's still it's still active. We just haven't posted anything for a while. <laughs> and uh, my wife and I co-host the Split Frame of Reference podcast, where we talk about uh, evangelical egalitarianism issues in in the text and theology, and just kind of pastoral and personal issues as it relates to um, to women in ministry and. Uh, women and men in the church and, and in marriage and stuff like that. And so I do podcasts, I write books, uh, I occasionally write an article or two, and when I'm not being a pastor on top of it or trying to get my doctoral stuff moving, I uh, sleep. Sleep sometimes. is good. It is sleep sometimes. is good. Yes. Yeah. Sleep is good. Unfortunately, we can only do it sometimes. we got to get stuff mm-hmm. done around here. Yeah. But, uh, hey, where are you doing your PhD at and what are you doing that in? Uh, well, I've been tentatively accepted to the program, but I haven't started yet. It'll be at Ridley okay. College down in uh, Melbourne, Australia. And the initial goal was due to something on Colossians, uh, something like an apocalyptic reading of Colossians or something like that. But I'm trying to shift away to, towards something that might be more interesting to your audience on uh, universal atonement or maybe cosmic atonement, a better way of calling it, in, uh, in the New Testament, but more probably in Pauline theology. And, of course, that brings up questions of, as, as you know, and in, in talking with me, it brings up a whole host of other questions about, you know, the nature of God and uh, the powers of the world. Are they all these sorts of things? And when we talk about universal, are we talking about human relationships? Are we talking about creation? Are we talking about the powers, uh, mm-hmm. angels, demons, and all that? So it's a, it's a big question. Yeah. Um, and one I know, at least in the Southern Baptist Convention, is, is, is heating up, at least especially since what? past 15 or so years, Calvinism has become a huge thing. Sure, so sure. it's, it'll, while I am convinced of universal atonement, um, I wonder if there's a better way of conceptualizing it in a way that just doesn't proof text, you know, first John two or second yeah. Peter three, nine or stuff like that. And so that's kind of the goal, but it of course depends on whether or not my mentor is okay with it. And no. he's, he's, he's a reasonable human being. I think I can convince him, but we'll see what happens with that. Well, we definitely have to have you on to discuss that sometime. I've had Don, love that. Uh, Dr. David Allen to discuss similar topics, at least, uh, mm-hmm. uh, unlimited tillman. I don't know if there's a technical difference between the language there or not, or if it's reference to the same thing. But how are you going to do PhD in Australia when you live in California? Uh, magic. Magic. Awesome. Well, I do like <laughs> no, magic. Not, Big it, Harry Potter fan. Be on the, 
Yeah, it'd be it'd be online uh, degrees in like the the United Kingdom or South Africa or or Australia are uh, based on uh, research models. Okay. So I wouldn't be I wouldn't be doing classes. I've already done a ton of those, and so it'd be one of those where it's all research. And basically, oh, gotcha. the whole point nice. is to write a well. It'd be something probably three times the size of this. Yeah. Um, and stuff like that. So basically, you just so write it's basically a basically just a dissertation. Just a dissertation. Oh, that's um, cool. They, yeah. And depending on where you land, they may have you do like a second master's degree, but that's kind of built mm-hmm. into the PhD process sure. just to kind of, you know, fine tune some things. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of one of those people. It's like, you know, I've been in a classroom enough. I'll go back yeah. to a classroom. But if I'm going to do research, research, I don't want to be in a classroom. I want to sure. be surrounded by, well, some books and all that. Well, very cool. Thanks for sharing. Now, we're here to discuss uh, the the book you recently published. Again, it's called The Perfection of Our Faithful Wills, Paul's Apocalyptic Vision of Entire Sanctification. And I'll leave a link in the description for the audience to get a copy of that. I got a copy of that. It's great. Full disclosure, haven't finished it yet. I told Nick that before we we started the interview. My heart uh, that's because is broken. Oh I'm my sure gosh, it is. I can't believe it. I'm going to finish it because it really is excellent, uh, about the half that I've read so far. And uh, I take my time reading, and that's why I haven't finished yet. And uh, it's a very thorough and uh, well-cited and referenced book. And I always, uh, you know, I, for the fact checker, I always go and look at those sort of things. So that's what makes me uh, read so slow. But anyway, it is a good book. You should get a copy. The link will be in the description. Okay, The Perfection of Our Faithful Wills. Tell us where you got the inspiration to write such a book in the first place. Yeah, I was uh, when I was doing my master's at Fuller. There was a professor I had. She has since moved on to, I believe, it's Columbia Theological Seminary in uh, in the in Atlanta area in Georgia. Mm-hmm. And uh, African American woman, one of the most brilliant New Testament scholars I know, can combine pastoral thought and exegetical rigor. Like just, she's she's incredible. And she made this kind of passing comment in a class on, I think it was Philippians and Philemon in Greek text. And so we're just going through the Greek of Philemon and, and uh, Philippians. And there's a use of a word uh, within the cognate word group, the family of words uh, telos or uh, teleao or something like that, which can mean perfect, as I argue, or complete or mature or stuff like that. It has kind of a, a punctiliar notion. And we kind of just were talking about it. And she kind of leaned in and kind of did that thing, which most good profs do is just, I'll, I'll throw out a question and just kind of leave it. And right. she's like, what is, what about this suggests that Paul had, uh, d- does Paul seem to have kind of a, for lack of a better word, an end to sanctification in a earthly sense? Can sanctification be something that happens while we're still alive? Because the common Christian idea is or at least broadly conceived within evangelical spheres, you know, just casting the net widely on that point. Most people believe, no, you're fighting the wretched man or sin until the end, you know, and then you're fully glorified and and stuff like that. And I'm not even opposed to that idea. But she kind of made that kind of passing point, looked around the room, because she's a good Wesleyan, she kind of looked around the room, and then we just moved on, which is a great pedagogical technique, because of course I'm It apparently like, worked, yeah. <laughs> it worked great, and so I, I shout uh, Dr. Love Seacrest, I shout her out in the book. I don't know if she's read the book or not, um, but that, that kind of was the genesis of it, and reading a lot of Wesley, I mean Fuller, you can't call it a reform seminar, but they do emphasize a lot of you know, Spurgeon and Edwards and Calvin. They want you reading the best, you know, and right. Bart, and I love reading them, have my disagreements, of course, with Calvin and Bart, but... Um, it was when I started reading John Wesley and reading his sermons where I saw essentially you have, excuse me, you have an exegetical mind, a mind that knows Greek, knows Hebrew, knows the world of the New Testament as much as you can during that time, mm-hmm. who was able to take that sort of knowledge but infuse it with daily pastoral ministry. And his sermons are some of the best examples of what Wesley called practical divinity that in the outpouring of the daily life, the divine or, or theology becomes proper, becomes real, becomes manifested in the life you live. And so it wasn't kind of an esoteric, yes, I study this, I study these books, right. you know, on Sunday, and then I shut them and I don't care about them anymore. It's like, no, this this is a daily kind of almost, you could almost call it a, a spirit act of daily spiritual formation where you're continually involved in it. And so Secret, Dr. Seacrest kind of put that in my mind, and then I had a similar class with Dr. Mary and Mike Thompson at Fuller, my final class. And in Colossians, it does use language of to present, and I'm butchering it, I don't have it off the top of my head, but but, but essentially presenting every person as perfect in Christ or before Christ, and that's that teleao language, that perfection language. And she kind of made a similar point. She's, you know, PCOSA and stuff like that, but she kind of made that similar point, like, that's an interesting phrase. And 
kind of asked a question and we all just didn't know what to answer because most of us, you know, we're just like, oh, we, we kind of gloss over that part. Right. And they said, okay, well, and just kind of moved on. <laughs> and so um, essentially it was kind of them asking questions in class that kind of, and, re- and me reading John Wesley's sermons and being more involved in it, because I don't come from uh, the Wesleyan tradition. I'm, I'm in the Baptist tradition, although I don't think Wesley would be opposed to the Baptist tradition. So I'm kind of a weird hybrid. Uh, but having them kind of involved and and speaking into that, at least planted the seeds for what would eventually become this, what, 150-page little book? No, 110 pages of text, I think. Yep, about 111 pages of actual text. And so, yeah, that's kind of where the genesis began. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Well, okay, so whenever you talk about uh, Christian perfection, uh, entire sanctification, uh, what do you mean and what do you not mean by those phrases? Yeah, um, and there there are important distinctions to be made because when we talk about the the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, this framework of entire sanctification or or um, Christian perfection, I'll, I'll use them interchangeably. I think they mean relatively the same thing. Okay, uh, is is the belief that the triune God is involved, and so it's not a matter of a Unitarian work or a tritheism. So it, it presupposes kind of a, a classical Christian outlook on the doctrine of God, who God is, God revealed as Father, Son, and Spirit. And so um, the idea is that, and this can happen sometimes, and uh, just as a personal example, I know I had a friend who grew up in the Bay Area, uh, San Francisco Bay, you know, up in there, addicted to drugs, doing all the things, and one day the Spirit got him and just changed, like had no desire for any of it anymore. And it's one of those where it's like, it's such an extreme example, I'm almost hesitant to use it, but I know it's real because I saw the fruit in his life. You know, I, I saw him be married, become a father, have kids, go into ministry and preach. And, and you can just see a radical change. And uh, in essence, that's kind of what it's like, at least on some level. It's not to say that every person has that. In fact, I know I've never experienced that. But there is a sense in which the sovereignty of the Spirit in empowering people towards a life of holiness means ultimately that the life of the human person becomes transformed, not uh, inwardly focused, you know, concerned with, say, uh, desire or, or preferences or sin, but th- those desires are reorientated toward a life of holy love. And that holy love becomes infused with the life of the Spirit because of the work of Christ by the will of God. And so we're not talking about every person once they—I don't like the language of conversion because I think it's just kind of vague—but once someone accepts Jesus, right, we automatically, at least when we th- hear this, we think of someone who instantly ding and no sin, and I float around, and I don't do anything. I have no desires or temptations or struggles. Right. And that may happen for some people. Um, you know, the Spirit is weird enough and sovereign enough to do some crazy things, <laughs> you know. And I'm, I'm not going to—I mean, but, I, you know, if someone were to say that, I'd look at the fruit of their lives. Like any good Christian, we, we'll look and go, show me the fruit. Show me—you show, know, give me evidence for this. And if they present evidence, it's like, okay, the Spirit's at work, you know. And so it's not the idea of instant— uh, transformation to where you bypass the struggle or or sin or anything, although that does occasionally happen. But it is the idea of a slow, arduous process of being transformed to the extent where the desires for sin, you know, where sin has the reign of the wretched person, where sin exercises dominion in our mortal bodies, becomes transformed into the likeness of Christ, that Christ's own power and through the work of the Spirit gives us a new lens on which uh, our lives are perfected because we don't lo- long for sin anymore. Mm. And so that's kind of the idea. So it's not an instantaneous sanctimonious, like, ooh, I accepted Jesus and everything's perfect. In fact, it says more likely what's going to happen is because the Spirit is perfecting you, and of course there's a synergistic element to that, there's free will involved and stuff, it's going to be an arduous process, but it can culminate in this life in the sense of being completely united to Christ, being completely, um, we might say, um, removed from the realm of sin into the realm of Christ. And that okay. and that kind of is the general idea. And there's texts we could talk about. Um, but that's kind of the general idea. It's a slow, arduous process of where the whole person is utterly transformed into, as Paul says, the image or the likeness of Jesus Christ, who transforms our bodies of humiliation or what have you into the likeness of his glorious body. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of that idea. So it's not putting, to sum up, it's not putting sanctification into the eschaton, where it's just a far-off reality where we hope we eventually end up. It's No, it's it's a present reality that we're called to live into by the power of the Spirit. Sure. And so that's kind of the idea. So I've, I've often heard people put um, salvation into terms, so a big umbrella of salvation, and then underneath it, um, terms like justification, sanctification, and then glorification at the end. 
And you're saying that you believe that glorification, if you're going to use my terminology, sure. um, is either swallowed up by sanctification or is the culmination of sanctification and it can happen while you're before Jesus returns, before you go to heaven right now in this life. Right. In some sense, I would say yes. Um, I would say rather than being separate things, I would say that they're concentric circles that interlock. Mm -hmm. um, you can't have one without the other. You need um, the act of God in Christ, as, as Romans talks about, um, the righteousness of God being manifested in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus as an act of or a declaration of our justification or of us being made right with God. And that requires a new mode of living, which, of course, sanctification. And then that mode of living becomes transformative into the idea of glorification. So for me, it's not necessarily separate entities or, or even the idea of I put it under one umbrella, but I would say they're concentric circles that link with one another and have continual interplay with them. And so you okay. can be in the process of being glorified while having been justified while still in the process of sanctification. So it's not to collapse all of them into one kind of thing, because I think they are distinct, as you mentioned. But they are linked, and they're like, I don't know what the phrase, I was going to say linked, but that's redundant. They're like chain links, you know, that yeah, kind of Yeah, I got, no, I got the imagery. Up. Yeah, I get you for sure. Yeah. Okay, so I can tell, and it, it's a thought that pops into my head, and I'm assuming it's going to be a thought that pops into everybody's head when they hear Christian perfection, is mm -hmm. are you saying that um, you can come to a place where you no longer sin? I'm not saying you're sinless because you have sinned yeah. and things like that, yeah. but you come to a point where you either no longer sin or you're not even um, you were talking about desires. Perhaps you're not even tempted mm -hmm. to sin. So uh, I was just going to see if you could speak to that. Yeah, and it's a good question. I, I think in some ways, yes. Um, I think Paul leaves out, leaves it entirely open. Uh, his language of of uh, perfecting holiness in the in the fear of the Lord in Second Corinthians seven one, where there's a tense form of continual action or continual process, but it also has the essence of being. Um, there is an end point to it, and the fact that he's talking to living people and has it's a it's an ecclesiological standpoint, a church standpoint. The idea of him kind of punting it to the eschaton is kind of weird, and so it's kind of Paul tends to write his epistles with kind of a this worldly urgency. There's a sense in which yes, you're being you know for example there's suffering and there's pain and there's persecution, and it's not merely to punt it to the future, but to say here's how we live in this now and here's what God is doing right now. And it does leave open the possibility, and it's not. It's uh, and since I'm not a determinist, I can't say yes. God will do this for every single person at every right. given time, you know, because um, I do think there is a sense of participation in Christ, or there's a, an element of the human kind of will, I, I, for lack of a better word, yielding to what Christ and the Spirit are doing. There, ha there has to be some sort of agency involved, um, but it does seem to basically assert and. Uh, you know, it's it's a contention, but I would argue the assertion is that Jesus Christ has broken the back of sin and death in the resurrection. And if that's true, then sin becomes something that we are to forsake. As Paul talks about, don't let sin reign or exercise dominion over your mortal bodies because you've been purchased. You've been bought with a price. You've been called out of something like the new Exodus kind of idea. You're brought out of the sin of and death of, say, Egypt or Babylon or, or the Roman Empire, and you've been claimed for something new. And so that and so desire or even the impact of sin becomes lessened over time. And as part of it is it may just be as simple as you and I are not the same people we were, you know, when we got married. Marriage, you know, we'll probably talk about this later, but marriage has a sanctification process. There's a when sense we, in which, when we both married different people, not when yes, Nick and I got married, yes, by the way. Yes, yeah. just to make that abundantly clear. <laughs> you know. But I mean we can see that just in our daily lives. Like when uh, you married your wife or I married my wife, there's a sense in which you and I are not the same people that when we were, we were when we got married. There is a, a sanctifying, correct. and our wives are all shouting. I can hear her going, "Amen!" and, and praise be yeah. to God. Yes, and um, she didn't change at all. She was already great. She didn't need any sanctifying. She was already oh, perfect. My wife has achieved entire sanctification already, so we're good. Yeah, we're good on that. Just wanted to make that clear. Yeah. Just wanted to make that clear. But that's kind of the idea: is sin. If we conceive of sin, is not something that merely happens to me as an individual in California or Texas or Oklahoma or Minnesota or whatever, but we conceive of sin as something greater. Sin as kind of as death is talked about, as kind of an operative power in the world. As right. I don't like the word I don't like attributing personal pronouns to sin or death, but the idea of it being an organic thing that is paradoxically paradoxically feeding off the living, right? Yeah. Death requires sustenance in order to survive. And the whole point is in the Christus Victor model, say the atonement, Christ has defeated sin and Satan and death and the evil and all those sorts of things at the cross. And so Christians are not to live in that new light anymore. We don't live in the realm of that, at least in the sense of 
allowing it to rule or reign in our hearts and in our bodies. And so there's a way of kind of reconceptualizing the Christian life as something that's lived under the reign of Christ and not under the reign of, say, the devil. Excuse me. And so sin becomes something that um, conceivably be, is loses its power over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are people I know, um, very few of them, I admit, but that I can look at them and go, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is about you. Um, but I can tell you're, you're not what you once were. And there's something to the extent of, I can tell what, des- what dominated your life, what, you know, maybe, uh, sexual pursuits or, or greed or lust or some sorts of things have no place in you. Yeah. What I mean? Yeah. yeah. Kind of switch. And you kind of look at it and go, that's part, and part of it's just maybe maturing and growing older, but there's something more to it. If, if the Spirit's at work convicting us and empowering us to change, then it's a sense in which God is already being like, no, I'm, I'm not so disremoved as to not be involved in your daily lives. And I mean, this is going to sound trite, but if we take the Old Testament laws seriously, the fact that God says you can do this means we can do it. Right, yeah. And so, no, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I don't have any objections in principle, at least in the sense that. Um, because I believe we have uh, libertarian freedom of the will, then it has to at least be logically possible that you could do that, even if it never actually uh, came to be. It's at least possible. Um, but um, let me let me push back. Not just kind of playing devil's advocate here. Let's sure. uh, uh, because I know people will be. Um, I'm sure people are at least reluctant to think that they could be perfect or that um, somebody else could be perfect in the sense that we, you, you mean the word perfect here. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so take, uh, I'll even throw in a little proof text with my devil's advocate. Take Paul's own language whenever he says um, that he didn't consider himself to have achieved the goal yet. And if Paul hadn't achieved the goal yet, how could I or how could anybody else look at how great Paul is and things like that? How, how do you respond to something like that? Mm, no, it's a, it's a really good question, and this is something I, I tackle toward towards the end of the book. I, I don't know how well, of course, it, but the idea is that the the presence of temporal sin, of sin in reality, so sin as a current thing, um, doesn't mitigate the the goal of future uh, sanctification or entire sanctification. So it could be conceived. It's con- entirely conceivable to me that Paul, given his circumstances, given uh, persecution and violence. Uh, isolation, uh, being alone, and all those sorts of things that it does plague the human person quite a bit. I mean, if we just take Paul's missionary journey seriously and him running all over the place and suffering all these sort of whippings and beatings and stuff, it's like that'll 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 have an impact on you. Yeah. But what we see is just because Paul says he's not strived or he's striving but has not attained the goal doesn't mean he doesn't think he can do it. It just yeah. means it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. And there's something to be said. And and I think Paul. A lot of people kind of like to talk down on Paul, but I'm like, I, I think Paul was genuinely aware of what he was as a person. You have some people that just aren't reflective. They don't meditate. They don't think about themselves. You know, they're they're kind of otherly focused. And I think Paul in his epistles, you get a sense of a person who's deeply aware of what he's going through, deeply aware of his mental state, of his surroundings, uh, and also deeply aware of other people. And so the fact that he can talk about um women or slaves in such a accommodating or kind way means he's not just so self-focused that he can't have empathy for other people. And so my thought is usually when we have someone who says that, and that might actually, that's kind of a joke, but the fact that he says he hasn't been perfected yet just means the spirit's still working on him. Right. And that gives, at least for me, that gives me hope. And I know I haven't achieved it. And it feels weird to talk about it in terms of, and I'm not saying you did this, but the idea of I achieving this or I having this happen it's almost one of those things I joked with with a friend of mine. It's like it's not as if you sit around going, you know, and then your meter fills up, and ding, oh, I've reached entire sanctification. It's right. almost one of those things that it's never about the person. It's about the community. It's about the gift of, say, you know, an older woman, for example, who's gone through incredible tragedy in life. You know, death, loss, divorce, being, you know, all those sorts of things, and not, th- and it becomes something where you're not focused on yourself, but it becomes a gift for others. You know, you're able to speak into other people's lives. And so entire sanctification is not about my personal little holiness and this little piece I have right here, but it's about the church. It's about um, life in the community of faith. And it's something for the building. And it's like, I, I wouldn't call it quite a spiritual gift as Paul does in you know, 2 Corinthians 12 through 14. I wouldn't quite fit it in there. But there is an element where it serves that sort of church function, yeah. where it's not as if we put this person on a pedestal, 
Although if we did, I think if a person's been entirely sane, you know, Christian perfection and all that, they wouldn't want to be on the pedestal in the first place because they'd be like, oh, no, don't. I'm, I'm, I'm wretched like everyone else, but right. God has been gracious and we work, you know, and so it's in a sense of it, it kind of destroys the idea of legalism. It destroys the idea of, yes, I've been made great and wonderful and holy. It's like, no, it's it's God has done something miraculous in my life. And my goal as a Christian is to be a, a living testament to that, to empower my brothers and sisters towards a life of similar holiness. Right. And so while I agree, yes, Paul, in many instances and, and other instances outside of him, uh, conceived of sin as something that was deadly, that was inflicting, and that was working on him. And he can say, yes, I've not achieved this. I've not been made holy. And I, I want to make sure it's a middle passive there. I have not been made holy, not that I have made myself holy. I have not been made holy. And if that's taken seriously, then we can look at Paul as Christians and go, just because he hasn't achieved it doesn't mean it's not possible for us. But because he's striving for it, it gives us the grounds of seeking after Christ like he did. And the goal, of course, is to be made holy as Christ is holy, and that if you're not perfect by the end of this life, you still are beloved by God and beloved by Jesus and the Spirit's with you. And so it's not—entire sanctification serves, in my mind, an ecclesiological function, not a existential personal one. Gotcha, gotcha. If that makes some sort of sense. No, it, it does. That's a good explanation. Um, so I know you don't like to put proof texts on things or and go oh. that sort of route, but uh, what are some biblical passages or verses even? Um, I don't mind proof texts, at least— in principle, yeah. they, it can be misused. But so, what are some places in Scripture where you find that Christian perfection or entire sanctification, in the sense that you mean it, is actually being taught by Paul? Yeah, and I'll I'll look through my book. Um, the first one I I immediately think of is Second uh, Corinthians seven one, and this is my translation. So, grain of salt, but every translation in English should be looked at with a grain of salt. Um, so Paul says, and this is I think one of the bigger texts. And Paul says, uh, because we have these promises that God will deliver and God will do these things, beloved ones, we should purify ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirits, perfecting holiness, um, which, uh, and well, I won't comment on that yet, and reverence for God or in the fear of the Lord. And the language used here is that perfecting holiness, that participle kind of idea, um, is a compound word for uh, epiteliao, which had, instead of teleao, meaning perfection, there's the fact that there's a preposition included in the compound. Excuse me. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a very strong word. And it's in an active tense, which means it's something we do. And so it's not something, and that doesn't mean we do it divorced from the Spirit. But it does mean we are active in, in seeking purity. And so the idea of perfecting holiness means, one, uh, eschewing the notion of impurity, whether that be sin or idolatry, or um, immorality, or whatever. And if that's the case, if we do those things, then that is the method of perfecting holiness in the in the presence of Christ, or in the presence of God. Um, and the perfecting language has kind of an, uh, a journey element to it that forces us, at least in my mind, not to go, well, yes, this this is, you know, for example, some people will say, oh, it's an idealistic phrase. And I'm like, well, yes, I think Paul is idealistic, but I think Paul's an idealist because he thinks God actually accomplishes a thing or two. Um, but there is a sense in which this um, this participle kind of involves the action of perfecting or taking care of holiness or infusing ourselves with holiness. And that includes the forsaking of impurities. And if that's the case, this assumes two things. One, that we are actually capable of rejecting what is sinful before God which I think is true, and two, that we can reject things and not only reject them and push them out of our lives, but continually live into what God has called us to be. Mm-hmm. And so that's one text where I think Paul very clearly at least has a strong kind of, no, this is something we can do. Right. And um, so that's one text, and I think there's one or two more. I really, I was really, I was struck by when I was when I was looking them, uh, looking at them. Let's see. Give me one sec. Oh, here we go. Um Actually, no, let's not go with that. There we go. Because uh, we talked, we just briefly talked about the Philippians text about striving yeah. for the goal. Uh, Colossians 1, 18, uh, 1, 28, and this is after the famous Christ, Christ hymn of Christ being the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and so on and so forth. So you have the deity of Christ being infused into this passage. Um, but right before uh, that Christ hymn in verses 15 through 20, you have this beautiful little phrase that kind of gets left out. And it's something along the lines of, I don't have it in front of me, but it's something along, along the lines of having been delivered or put into a new kingdom mm-hmm. where Christ is king. And not only that, but we have 
been given emancipation or liberation, the forgiveness of sins. So sin has been something that you can't say is canceled because it's it's a little too transactional. Although it is the, it is a sense of transactional. You you know we've wiped the debt clean, but I'm now seeing you in a new light. Right? There's a new way of doing things in God's new reign or God's kingdom. And so, um, coupled with this in Colossians 1:28, uh, he has this an admonition towards all believers. And so it's directed towards the people in Colossae, in Colossi, but it has application for everyone. So he says, uh, Him, that is Christ, we proclaim, warning all people and teaching all people in all wisdom, so that we might present all people as perfect, teleaon, in Christ. And so the goal here, and, and this is something that gets missed too, uh, the goal is to perfect before Christ or in Christ, that Christ is kind of the mechanism for our sanctification. But what gets missed here, I think, is the goal has, of course, a Christological or a sanctification aspect, but it's also at the heart missional, right? The goal is to present people, as Paul talks about 2 Corinthians 5, you know, uh, 14 through 21, about God having achieved reconciliation and new creation, all these sort of orbiting ideas. And the goal is to present every person, um, and that, of course, gets into the universal uh, atonement idea, of all people being included in the divine sweep of God's cosmic display of grace. And if that's true, then we've got a text where Paul's stated goal in Colossians is to present people in terms of ethics, in terms of purity, in terms of, we might say, the Christ-infused life as perfect, as without blemish, before a holy God, as a sense, an offering, as demonstrating to God, look, we have we have committed our lives to missions, we've committed our lives to evangelism, we've committed our lives to participation and discipleship in the church, and the goal is to present a holy people to God, free from blemish and sin, as an offering and attestation of our own love for Him. Hmm. And so there's yeah. yeah, a big element of discipleship that often gets overlooked. Yeah, so I'm looking at, uh, I pulled up Colossians 1.28 on my Logos here while you were reading it off. I'm looking at that. My, uh, my English translation, I got the Lexham English Bible, mm-hmm. uh, and it says, present every person mature in Christ, but then I double-click on it, and it pulls up the Greek, and you've got fully grown, mature, complete, mm-hmm. having reached its utmost development. And then you got yep. um, some other completely good, and that's in James. James yep. uses it that way, completely operative, perfect. It's also synonymous yep. with perfect. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, I don't and, know uh, Greek that well. That's why I rely on Logos. <laughs> well, no, that's that's good because I, I think if the idea of what I've said can include maturity, it can include the idea right. of of a life lived. Um, yeah. I mean, Paul wasn't young when he wrote these, and so I think it also. And this might be a little ageist, but I don't mean to sound like that. But there is something to be said about people who've lived a life, yeah. right? Who've lived a life, who've gone through struggles, who've gone through an actual pain, versus a young buck, you know, and you know, she or he is 18 who, you know, knows a thing or two, but doesn't know everything. And, and I think the idea of perfection or of maturity or even an end kind of achieved element kind of removes the idea of it being, um, something that's divorced from daily life. And if something is achievable in this life, it can only be achievable sometimes through suffering or through pain or through the knowledge of, of wisdom or the gaining of wisdom. And I'm not using those terms in like some sort of higher knowledge, but just daily life. You know, it's like if you've lost a child or if you've been in a car wreck or if you've seen things at church that have affected the whole community, that will mature you in a sense of growing. It's it's a way of being able to, for example, cope with uh, horrendous evils, as philosophers like to call them. You know, and there's a way of maybe conceptualizing evil in a sense of instead of it being something that continually grips you, you now see a way through it. And that way of seeing through it becomes something you can involve younger folk, for example, who have gone through extensive suffering or pain as a way of not saying, yes, God predestined this or God did this to you, but here's how God has shown us how to get through it together. And that can be an act of, of sanctification as well. So sanctification is not merely about personal holiness or salvation, but the I would say it's the impetus of the Christian life. Hmm. An attempt to live in the Spirit, of course. Right. Okay, so how how does one how does one obtain Christian perfection? What is the process? What is the cause of this? How do you how do you get there? Yeah. The way you get there is gonna sound really trite. And I apologize, cool. but it's um, it's through the empowerment of the Spirit. 
Yeah. Um, and it involves, I think, a few things. One, of course, you have the idea of conversion. You, have you the mean idea this? Of, you mean this isn't a man-centered theology? Well, if man-centered on the person Jesus Christ, then yes. Oh, touche. That's a good one. Yeah. You 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 have some experience with this. Go ahead. Yes, once or twice. Yes. Uh, but if Jesus Christ is the center of the human condition, uh, the center of our resurrection, of our uh, our, our standing before God as reconciled people, or even we might say as adopted children before God, then this is achieved, or I would say actualized or something like that, by the one, I mean, baptism, not in the sense of salvation, but baptism as confirmation, so everyone can attest publicly in the community of faith that you are willing and able to participate in the life of the church, right? And so there is a sense of the local church being involved in this. Um, and once, say, baptism happens, or not saying it, it must happen, but when baptism happens, there's a sense in which um, the sins of uh, the, the sin that gripped you, the sin that did this, becomes contextualized as something that is foreign to yourself, right? And so it kind of forces us to re rethink of how sin is uh, an operative agent, right? Because sin, we usually say we have a sin nature, right? Or a sin, or, or all those sorts of stuff. And on the I one don't. sense. But yes, people oh, do. Yes, some people do. <laughs> and there is something to be said about that, so I'm not like throwing it out, but there is something to be said also of sin as a foreign thing. And there's a reason that the early church fathers conceived of sin as a, as a disease or as, some, or as an illness that kind of infects and corrodes and corrupts and ultimately, if left unchecked, will result in death and decay and destruction. And the spirit, for lack of a better word, is the infusive antidote to that condition. And so, because I believe the Spirit is involved in our lives, I believe that the Spirit um, is sovereign in giving gifts and empowering people. How This happens through, I would argue, an extensive time of submission to the Spirit, and that can take, you know, anywhere from being baptized and ding, you got it, although I would require confirmation of that, because I think this can easily be abused. Right. Or it means a life lived in continual submission to what God has called you to be. And that, I think, is where the, the meat lies, where that's where the heart of the discussion is. If you can look at someone's life, you know, and it requires, and this presupposes that community is good, that the local church is good, that as brothers and sisters, we're involved in each other's lives, so we can actually attest to this. If that's the case, then the things that govern their life, whatever sin it might be, or even just the reign of sin, we can look at it and go, whatever God is doing has been done. And... We can look at that person and go, that person has not only been what everything God has called her to be, but also I can see how the spirit through her is infecting everyone else with holiness, to use a, a crude term, but the spirit infuses everything else with it. So Christian sanctification or Christian perfection is the means by which the community itself can experience the presence of Christ. And that happens usually when, and I would argue and Wesley kind of alluded to this was the idea of it doesn't happen instantaneously. Although there are cases where you can, Oh yeah, there something clearly happened. You know, um, usually you'll see it in the hands and the, the person of older people, uh, people who have, as we've said, lived a life who've understood what it's like to sacrifice, to give up, to be in pain. And there's just something, I, I don't quite have the words for it, but having uh, seen numerous folks die, you know, in pastoral ministry, having sat with their their, their uh, surviving spouses, there's just something about what God is doing through that time, through that mourning process, that I go, whatever it is, that's entire sanctification, where instead of being angry at God or being self-centered or self-focused, they're focused on everyone else. Mm -hmm. And it's a and it's a way of kind of alleviating other people's suffering as well. And so there, it's 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 a big question, but it is something that I think if we interpret it in terms of what the sovereignty of the Spirit is doing, what God, what the Triune God is actually doing, it gets the attention off us. And so it's one of those things. It's it's not that it's never you can't ever confirm it because I think you can, but the whole idea of confirming it seems to kind of miss the point of it a little bit. Mm -hmm. because then you're focused on the, the, the person doing it. You know what I mean? And so I'm so are not, you saying it's unknowable? Not necessarily. I think I, well, I know. Okay. 
Because yeah. I was going to say, then it's entirely possible that Paul had achieved it. He just, I mean, his oh. statement was he, that he yeah. doesn't consider himself to have achieved it, which yeah. um, philosopher in me coming out, that doesn't necessarily mean he hadn't achieved it. It just means he didn't yeah. consider himself to have achieved it. Yeah. But, you know, if there's this sense in which it can be achieved, it would be hard, difficult, or perhaps impossible to know that you had achieved it. Without uh, that, getting, that, uh, yeah, without getting so, and I hate to use the verse, person-centric, right, to where you get kind of lost in, am I, and, and, get, and that's the question of legalism, right? Of being right. So I know, I'm not going to get off it, though. I know you ain't going to. No, no, and I think there's something a lot to be said about that. Yeah, and and I think, um, and that's something I, I I try to answer that question. I try to anticipate that question towards the end of the book. But can this result in legalism? Absolutely, and that's why it needs to be seriously considered right. in the life of a community, not just one person going like, "Yep, me, I've, I did I've it. Achieved it. I did it. Yeah, I, I did know it. I'm not going to do it. I know I'm not going to do it in this life. Maybe not even in the next. We'll see." Um, but yeah, I mean, I really do just want to, um, and and people need to get the book. There's a lot more detail and things like that. Um, it, it really isn't about ooh, look at me, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you're just gonna take my word for that, and hopefully read the book. But I really do want to get down to that question because I know it's just gonna be the number one question on people's minds. <sighs> I know that you're saying, and you don't have to qualify it with me at least. I know that you're saying this is a work of God, of the Spirit in the individual and in this church. But let me just regurgitate everything I think you're saying. You, are, I think you are saying that a person can be saved, that is, accept Christ and repent of sin and trust in Him for salvation, and um, then receive the Holy Spirit, and through the work of the Spirit, but also through the work of the human will, the human will is still involved, uh, come to a place where they always reject what is sinful and do the will of God. Yes, that's possible. I, I, okay. I think that's entirely possible. Okay, I just I wanted think, to make that as explicit, yeah. clear as possible. Okay. No, no, and I think that's that's very helpful because um, I can get lost in the in the weeds. So that's very helpful. It's essentially saying that the human person, in cooperation with the Spirit, right. is able to be perfected. Notice that the the passive. I'm not saying right. You know, of be himself, perfected. Yeah. To be perfected um, mm. through the work of this work of the work of the Son on the cross and through the continual continual agency of the spirit on their lives but it does require for lack of a better it does require a sort of will a sort mm. of kind of involvement a, a participationism and i don't think for example and i make this i try to make this point while i am operating from a wesleyan baptist perspective which assumes libertarian free will and right. all the things that go along with that i don't see how nothing at least in my understanding of reformed theology for example whether deterministic or compatibilistic or whatever why they would have to reject that conclusion. You know what I mean? And I want to make that clear because I don't think this is a, this is centered on human freedom or at least the participate, the participationist elements of human freedom is I think if you are reformed and if I were going to don my reform glasses, I'd say if I believe in uh, soteriological determinism, right? That God elects before the foundation of the world, a people for God's self, uh, to present them holy and blameless and all that, just to kind of utilize a certain understanding of that sort of New Testament language, then why wouldn't entire sanctification be possible in this life under that kind of scheme? Right, it mind, would it be, but it wouldn't be by your definition, which includes the active participation of the human will, right? Right, and so I am operating with the understanding of, 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 of human freedom, of libertarian free will, and all those sorts of things. But a Reformed theologian could qualify that right. and say— you know, while rejecting libertarian freedom, because they do make room for, in the in the realm of uh, human agency when it comes to sanctification, right? They they make a lot of. Um, I just want to represent them fairly. They leave a lot sure. of room for for that. Well, in, I uh, mean, yeah, they try to. Yeah. Oh yeah, I, I don't think it's consistent, but they right. and I and I respect this. They try to they leave a lot of room in their scheme for it, and I think if that's respected, then I don't see why entire sanctification. While it is a Wesleyan distinctive, couldn't yeah. be adopted by Reformed theologians. Now I get what you're saying, yeah, for sure. And I know that I've now made it about that which you wanted to avoid making it about, so I apologize. But I just I'm just trying to... to be nice. But if we want to get <laughs> sassy, we can totally get sassy. But I just wanted to make that clear. Okay, sure. so um, you have a chapter on Christology and how this helps us understand Christian perfection. What does uh, Christology have to teach us about Christian perfection? If we conceive of, uh, and, and this is kind of the whole heart of the book, if one doesn't accept kind of what I'm saying in this, it's going to make the rest of it a little 
just kind of it'll make it a tough road. But essentially, I'm arguing for what Michael Gorman calls Paul's master story. The idea is you have the pre-existent eternal son equal to the father, right? It, so it assumes a Trinitarian outlook uh, who through his own agency becomes incarnate by accepting the form of a slave and being born in the likeness of humankind and lives a life of abasement of, of, of human existence and all those sorts of things. And upon his crucifixion is resurrected and exalted back to the status by which he once possessed. So there's a V shape to that story. Um, if Jesus Christ was perfect at these two points, right? And we also say, and this is something I didn't develop in the book, but now that I've done more work on atonement theory, I, 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 would, I wish I could have included it, is the idea of, of that V, that intersection down here. If that is true, that Jesus Christ is perfect, i.e. without sin, because you can't have sin in the Godhead, you can't have sin in his earthly life or in his exaltation either. Jesus, while like his brothers and sisters in every way, was without sin. We cannot claim that he was uh, that he experienced, that he sinned, and maintained a classical Christian Christology across the three great traditions: Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestant. You can't have that. There's no room for sin in the Godhead. And if that's true, then the life that Jesus lived is designed to show us one: uh, what God is like. Of course, you know his healings, his 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 call out against uh, wealth and 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 all those sorts of things is. His, uh, his life lived in submission to God and obedience and all those sorts of things, and uh, was also lived without sin. And if that's the case, then that shows us what pleases God. The idea of the Jesus life becomes our imitation. We look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels mm -hmm. as a life worthy of imitation. And that means, in some sense, you can say by looking at it, going like, that is what God really desires. That is our call to arms as Christians. It doesn't leave Paul or Hebrews or Revelation out, but it does look at the Gospels and going like, this is where we draw our ethical air. That's how we live. We live a life like Jesus lived. And if that's the case, and Jesus lived a life without sin, we then can look at that and go, okay, because classical Christology dictates that Jesus was without sin and called us to be like him, to imitate him, that becomes our grounds for going, we are capable of imitating Christ by following his example. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, his self-giving love, his love for all of humanity, is all of creation, his, his desire for unity, his desire for... Um, including people that are otherwise on the margins and all that, becomes a way in which we participate in the life of Christ. As Paul talks about becoming imitators of Christ, or, or in Philippians talks about having the mind of Christ or the mindset of Christ. And if that's the case, then there is no room for sin, at least in terms of what sin is. Right. And so the daily life of living in the shadow of the Messiah becomes our way of basically putting sin to death. And if that's the case, if classical Christology is the foundation of this, then you have the language of faith, of kingship, so Christ has a right to claim and tell us how to live by living it. You have the language of faith, that Christ showed, here's a life lived in allegiance to God, perfect allegiance to God in Romans right. 3 and Galatians and so forth. And we're told to imitate that, which in my mind seems to assume that we are capable of doing it once we understand what it is. Yeah. And and once we um, have God's spirit living in us mm -hmm. um, yeah. and become united to that. Uh, and speaking on that, I, so it wouldn't be possible for us to achieve this without the help of the spirit. Um, There's no I, way. Right. So... Um, in some sense, it's not humanly possible. It, it can't be. If, if it is humanly possible, then the work of Christ is irrelevant. Uh, I don't know why we have the Holy Spirit in the first place. Um, the church becomes irrelevant, or at least um, we might even want to put it negatively, detrimental to the life of the Spirit, because look how many people are leaving the church. Um, it becomes uh, politically dangerous to do it. And so it's one of those things, if it's entirely a human effort, I have no—why— why even believe that Jesus accomplished what he did on the cross or what the right. spirit is? And it's one of those things in order to affirm this doctrine, in some sense, you have to be a full, <laughs> a full blooded Trinitarian. Mm -hmm. 
as not to slam other people for, for that sort of stuff, but yeah. no, it is I'm to saying say, this. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. I'm saying no, I'm pointing that out in those terms because it makes it very explicitly clear that the objection to this doctrine would be something uh, like is often leveled at guys like you or me, which is man centered theology and things like that. Right. Uh, oh, oh, <coughs> you think you can be perfect? <coughs> and the answer is no, it's not humanly possible. But with the indwelling of the Spirit, it certainly is. And I think mm -hmm. there becomes, because you were drawing an analogy and you were talking about the imitation of Christ and how we're called to imitate Him, and if we couldn't achieve that, then it's pretty useless in imitating Him, um, or at least commanding us to imitate Him. And if we're just right. always going to fail, it just doesn't really make any sense. Um, at least initially, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but, and I don't, I want to be careful here, because I don't want to, say something heretical but there <laughs> there seems to be an analogy between what we were just discussing uh the fact that we could not achieve that uh, the achieving of christian perfection is not humanly possible but the human will with the spirit of god can achieve it and mm -hmm. there seems to be a further an, an analogy to the imitation of christ in the sense that jesus wasn't merely man he was also mm -hmm. fully god in the hypostatic union there and so it seems that the analogy might even go further, unless I'm starting to borderline on something heretical. I'll back off of it. No, no, and, and that makes some sense to me. Um, and this, of course, I mean, this is aided with the idea of prevenient grace in the in the Wesleyan Arminian tradition. The idea that um, God. Can you explain that? Yeah, can you explain that to me? Yeah, uh, prevenient grace, and I'm I don't have the definition in front of me, so I'm going That's off okay. the top of my head. So grain of salt is the idea that um, God. And this is my definition. So there are my idea is we and it's not to start with with humankind, but it is to assume that God is perfect and all this sort of stuff. But what God required to do was to unveil God's self. There is a sense of divine disclosure, and that requires the incarnation, right? So John's Gospel, the prologue, you know, the, and the Word became flesh and made His home among us. And this um, this Son uh, was light and life itself. And uh, the darkness could not overpower it, you know. Excuse me. And I don't develop this as much as I probably should in the book, but there is the idea of without the object of Christ, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we can know what God requires through the Old Testament law. But we can't know to what extent Jesus Christ or what what fully God is, what God is fully and completely. And that required the sending of Jesus Christ in sinful flesh to be like us in every way, except without that sin component. And therefore, we can look at Christ as the object of our faith and of our worship. And that's why Paul and, and Hebrews talk about Christ being the hypostasis or the image or the icon of God, the one who fully reveals who God is and who God has always been. And if we take that seriously, the incarnational revelation of God in Christ, then reconciliation becomes not a God thing, but a triune God thing. And it requires us to understand that um, without the object of faith, that is Jesus Christ, the person, Jesus Christ, the man, right? Without that revelation of that object, we don't know exactly what God requires of us outside of obeying the law, which is good and holy and was fine. But there is a sense in which the Christian doctrine of Jesus Christ eclipses and summarizes and completes the story of the law, right? Galatians, for example, sure. right? And the full, when the fullness of time had been, had come to pass, God's son came to us to basically put an exclamation point to the sentence of history. And that means that whatever we say about this doctrine, it has to be based on the Christology of the one who willfully became human. So there's no subordinationism permitted in this. It's a fully triune, equal Godhead. And if that's the case, then God has shown us exactly what it's like to follow him. And he expects us to do it. And I, for one, go, well, that's a, <laughs> that's a tall order. Jesus Christ living a sinless life, but yeah. if Jesus Christ can do it, and Jesus Christ was like us in every way, and Jesus Christ calls us to serve Him, and the best us, I can yeah. do, yeah. the best I can do is try my best through the power of the Spirit. So the idea of it being human-centered just has, in my mind, if someone's making that objection, there's just a really deficient Christology at play. That's not to say they're not Christians or anything like that. I'm not making that claim, but a robust. Nicene Orthodox Christology, in my mind, requires something like this as an output. Yeah. 
Okay. A uh, couple more questions, and then we'll sure. we can, uh, be done. But uh, what what effect does sanctification have on eschatology? I think this is one of the last chapters in the book. Yeah, and this was one of those chapters I I really tried to be careful with, and it was one of those. This could have gone. This could have been the whole book was just eschatology and perfection. The idea is in Pauline theology and New Testament theology in general, the 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 present order, right, is under the reign of sin and death and the powers. And that includes human governments and the state and all that sort of stuff. But also we might say the supernatural or even the extra natural, yeah. right? N.T. Wright likes to use the language of um, using an it to describe the devil, right? You don't want to give too much humanity to the devil because it's not quite human, but it's living and it's operative and stuff like that. And I think he's right. What this indicates is that the goal of Christ's work on the cross, when it comes to, say, atonement theories, is Christus victor, is the victory of God over sin and death. And that is achieved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but by the Pentecostal, uh, not by the, well, the Pentecostal, the Pentecost of the Spirit, the giving of the Spirit to all people so we can know how to imitate Christ and live in accordance with Christ's teachings. If that's the case, then eschatology doesn't become something that— um, sweeps everything up as if it's okay. Uh, so, for example, universalism, nor um, incarcerates people to the to the side in some part of God's creation. But it seems to kind of look at everything holistically and go, that which will not submit to God. And Paul uses the language of uh, death being the final enemy to be destroyed, of uh, sin not having any reigning operative power, um, or being put into nothingness. There seems to be a sense in which. Um, the goal of perfection is achieved in Christ, and that results in a creation without disorder, chaos, sin, and death. Right. And that means, well, and that affects how we think about, say, the, the doctrine of hell. Yeah, I was um, thinking about that. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and so um, I'm not a universalist. I was for about four months, uh, like way back in the day, and then. Uh, the joke is I read Second Temple Judaism and went, well, there's no precedent for this, so I, that'd be just historically irresponsible to affirm universalism, yeah. just historically. Um, but there are uh, debates within evangelical Christian circles about um, eternal conscious torment or variants therein and what's called annihilationism, and there's variants with that. The idea of death and destruction taken as, we might say, I wouldn't say literal because I, I, I think the use of literal can be a little just not helpful but the idea that the wages of sin is death and the result of a life lived in sin is death forever it's a state of utter i like i use the language of lifelessness or the cessation of life because yeah. we often you'll see language of ceasing to exist and i'm like well that's oddly that's i think a little too philosophical there's a sense in which evil is utterly removed from all of creation and I think that's kind of Paul's idea, and that's not to address every verse in the New Testament. That's not to address Revelation, and there are there are debates to be had about that. But Paul's vision seems to view all of creation as returning to what it was originally intended to be in Christ, and that includes perfection as it relates to ecology and how we treat the earth, uh, perfection as it relates to human persons and interpersonal relations, and also the idea of a cosmos originally restored to what it was designed to be. That full circle is brought together. Right. And whatever we say, and there are variants that can be included in this, the idea is there's no room for the continual presence of sin, death, and the powers, and anything that's in hostility to God. And if that's the case, then that really narrows our focus on what we think about hell, because then it doesn't become a question of who goes where. It's a question of how is God making things new in God's cosmos? And what role is sin and death in this? And if we believe that sin and death are products of the fall, of, of human rebellion, you know, for example, someone refusing to submit to the Spirit, refusing to submit to the Lordship of Christ, living a life of active rebellion, so it's not capriciousness on God, there's a sense in which you can say, and I, I don't have it fully figured out, but the idea of a perpetual existence somewhere where people are kept alive, where sin is allowed to kind of reign or dwell— seems to go against the very nature of New Testament theology, or at least Pauline theology. Right. And so that's how I think eschatology and perfection can kind of at least aid us in, in determining what the end, or what we will call the beginning of the end of the beginning, 
as N.T. Wright says, uh, actually happens. And so there are questions of immortality and um, incorruptibility that relate to uh, eschatology that I talk about. But the idea is whatever we say about the end, meaning the end of this age, it cannot include sin or death or evil as continuing properties of existence. And that, I think, is for for y'all, when it comes to apologetics, a very uh, lively topic. And that's something I think Christian perfection could at least aid a little bit. Yeah, no, it definitely is. And uh, actually, I hadn't thought about that direct application. I thought about the direct application of this view of hell for apologetics. Mm-hmm. That wasn't hard to make, the application there. Um, let's just say, and we can talk afterwards, but let's just say sure. I emailed Chris Date actually today. today. <laughs> so I want to have him on. I love uh, me some Chris Date. I don't I'm, know if I'm he'll respond or if I'll get to have him on, but uh, we'll see. Uh before we get to the bonus segment, and again, thanks so much mm-hmm. uh, for doing this, Nick, and thank you to the listeners if you're, if you're still hanging in there with us. I know we've, we've gone uh, quite uh, down the path today, but um, um, if you want to listen to the bonus segment uh, with Nick and myself, uh, five more minutes with Nick Quint, and also you'll get access to all the bonus segments that we do with all of our interviewees, including other lovely benefits like also uh, discovering what i've been drinking this whole time i'll tell you there there you have it nick is drinking a beer nick is that's a beer he has not achieved entire (laughs) sanctification i'm just (laughs) not by baptist standards no i no 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 okay so anyway the bonus segment or patreon or something the patreon link is in the description below if you want to become a patron my advertisement here got completely jacked up by alcohol that's what alcohol will do to you folks it'll jack up that's why you should your, drink it. Your advertisements as well as your life and your loved one. I don't know what it'll do. I don't I'm I'm sad that I don't have a beer here to cheers you. I would I was kinda like, well. man, I feel kinda bad drinking a Christmas beer. My mom got me this beer for Christmas and my mom is I love my mom. Very conservative. I love my mom. And she's like, I feel kinda bad giving this to you and I'm like don't worry, it won't go to waste. It's it's fine. You're you're fully sanctified. Give me a few more days to finish it. We'll be, well, we'll be what good. is it? What is what kind of beer is it? Show it to us. It is the uh, stone what is called the Shaka Vesa. Okay. And it is a uh, stout, so very dark, very hearty, uh, brewed with chocolate, coffee, passilla peppers. Oh so there's gosh. a spiciness to it. Vanilla, cinnamon, and nutmeg. And so mm. it is very rich and there's a lot of flavors. And I'm I'm smart because I'm drinking it at room temp. I had it well. I guess I could show you that case right there. No, you I've can't got... show us because you got your blurry thing on. Oh, uh, well, I can't fix that. Anyway, there is a bookcase here that has all the beers I collect throughout the year. And it's one of those where I have just a set in case a friend comes over from out of town or something like that. Just so I can be like, hey, I've had this sitting for a couple months and I'd love to share, you know, share it with you and then talk with talk theology and just hang out. And so if if you ever end up in you know, Redlands, California, I've got <laughs> six sitting there that I probably will never drink unless you come out. So, yeah. Well, ship one to me. I don't know if you can ship beer through the mail or not. Anyway, okay, last question before we go to the bonus segment. What books do you recommend on this subject, other than your own, obviously, which, again, will be linked in the description below? Well, this book, I'm told, is okay. Um, right. The problem yes. with this book is – the last book I saw on the subject, and I, I could be completely wrong on this, and I welcome anyone to tell me I'm wrong, was by Kenneth Greider. And I want to say it was 19 – it was in the – actually, I can check. I have a bibliography in this. Um, his was the only book that I found that actually addressed the subject. Really? Uh, let's see. Yep. I mean there are books that have like chapters or, or sections okay, on it. Okay, just as like its a, main subject. Yes. Right. Uh, let's see, Grider. Yep, uh, J. Kenneth Grider. I think he taught at Point Loma University, which is in San Diego, which is like two hours south of me. Uh, it's called uh, "Entire Sanctification: The Distinctive Doctrine of Wesleyanism," and that's by Kansas. That's in Kansas City from Beacon Hill Press in 1980. And I'm sure there have been works that address it since then, but his was the full like monograph that addressed it. And there's stuff in there that I don't interact with his work a lot simply because there's some stuff in there where I'm like, you know what, the idea of different types of baptism, of he has a section where he kind of intuits the subordinationism of the Trinity, which I'm not uh, entirely comfortable with. Um, I mean, it's a good book if you want to get that, just to kind of see the, the precursors of the doctrine, but um, the short the the shortcoming of my book is it's just Paul. It's essentially a, a little Pauline theology. His book is more uh, incorporative. It's bigger. Um, 
but I think it's it's a it's a good book. Um, just as with all books, especially mine, uh, reading with discernment's a good thing. So that was that's the closest book I have. Um, the other book, oh gosh, no, I don't have it here. It's called um, oh, what's it called? It's uh, if you Google. Kenneth J. Collins. He teaches at Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky. It's a book on John Wesley's theology. I forget exactly what it's called, but it's like the theology of John Wesley. And it's an it's a 400-page book, but it's beautifully written. He talks about all of Wesley's kind of theological constructions and ideas and exegetical stuff. And it's I think I want to say it's by Abingdon Press in Nashville. And it's a really astounding book. Like Roger Olson loved it, gave it a, a write-up and all that. And he talks about Christian perfection in it, but he talks about all of Wesley's theology. So if you want to see a Wesleyan theology based on John Wesley's teachings that includes entire sanctification as an idea within it, that's probably the best go-to book is Kenneth Collins' book on John Wesley's theology. All right. Well, thanks so much uh, for joining us. If you want to join the party in the bonus segment, Five More Minutes with Nick Quint, just follow the Patreon link in the description below and become a supporter of Help Me Believe. And shout out to all of our Patreon supporters, by the way. We appreciate it. Because of your support, we get to, I get to produce free material like this, which spreads and defends the truth of Christianity. So thanks so much for your support. If that's a mission you want to support, again, bonus segment, go to the Patreon link in the description below. Nick, Thanks so much for joining me, sir. We'll have to do it again sometime. Always a good time. I always appreciate it. Thank you for what you do. I appreciate it.